another episode of the anarchist experience episode 449 aka year nine week 25 coming at you this week as always i am your host mr rich e rich uh with hopefully the final uh well of the most recent uh stretch the final episode of richie rich reads the news uh this is the third week rolling that mc has been out on his honeymoon um i don't know again i don't know when he's coming back but i expect him to be back on the show next week so you get one more terrible show of me reading the news and giving my own personal take with without mc's knowledge and insight and whatnot what have you um for another week and then hopefully next week like i said he'll be back and the show will resume its normal broadcast which is on the old clubhouse uh saturday afternoons we just rolled the clocks back uh here in new england so Saturday afternoon, still 3 p.m. Eastern time, a little early for them on the other side of the broadcast, but we'll see how that plays out. That being said, let's just get on with it. Uh, first headline, no country has a right to exist. Now, before reading the headline, I was certain that this was going to be about the uh, Israel-Palestine thing, and that's fine. Uh, but keeping in mind that this show is the anarchist experience, it makes sense uh, that we try to abolish the the rights of those people in charge as much as possible uh, from existing entirely. So here we go. No country has a right to exist in the weeks since 2,500 Hamas militants went on a murder and kidnapping rampage in southern Israel. A wave of pro-Palestinian Palestinian demonstrations have erupted across the United States and around the world. These displays have only grown in size and number as Israel militant uh, Israel's military responds by punishing the entire densely packed population of Gaza with a blockade on food, water, and medicine, a devastating bombing campaign, and now a ground invasion. Uh, I should mention this article was written last week Saturday, so I don't know what's happened in the past week, but this is you know this is from then. Uh, while no mass protest is free of people with bigotry and amoral stances. Proponents of Israel have been far too quick to accuse pro-Palestinian protesters of anti-Semitism. One of the most common of such false accusations rests on a false premise, namely that it is inherently anti-Semitic or genocidal to question Israel's right to exist. That premise is false for a number of reasons, the most salient of which is this. No country has a right to exist. After all, what is a country, or in more precise terminology, a state, other than a political arrangement? And why would any political arrangement be deemed as having rights, much less a supposed right to never be altered or canceled? While definitions vary, Murray Rothbard best distilled the state in his classic long essay, Anatomy of the State. Rothbard wrote, The state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. Whether the associated flag of the state in question has a Star of David, Stars and Stripes, or a Hammer and Sickle, the suggestion is that it's immoral to propose that such a monopoly be arranged or replaced is preposterous on its face. Over the broad sweep of history, the norm is not states existing in perpetuity, Rather, history is the story of never-ending rearrangements of, of these many monopolies on the use of force and violence. Did the Soviet Union have a right to exist? What about Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, or the Ottoman Empire? Are we culpably silent bystanders to some kind of ongoing injustice as those long bygone states are not reconstituted? Rather than having rights to exist, each state from Israel to Ukraine to the United States must have permission to exist, 
As expressed in the Declaration of Independence, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. To embrace that fundamental principle is to acknowledge that the state of Israel, a political entity, can only justly continue imposing its monopoly on the use of force and violence if it has the consent of those it governs. And who does Israel govern? For all the talk of a two-state solution and maps depicting the West Bank and Gaza as something somehow separate, the fact is that the state of Israel rules everything between the river and the sea. To invoke a contentious phrase we'll revisit shortly, uh, quote, Between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, one state controls the entry and exit of people and goods, oversees security, and has the capacity to impose its decisions, laws, and policies on millions of people without their consent, wrote Michael Barnett, Nathan Brown, Mark Lynch, and Shibley Telhami in Foreign Affairs. Their April essay presciently warns that a storm is gathering in Israel and Palestine that demands an urgent response, unquote. The population across that Israel-ruled territory includes 7.5 million Jews and 7.5 Arab Israels, uh, 7.5 Arab Israelis and Palestinians, with each group subject to different treatment. West Bank Palestinians endure restrictions on their movement, from checkpoints to segregated highways. The state of Israel frequently demolishes Palestinian homes and businesses for lack of permits that are extraordinarily difficult to secure. Palestinians endure ongoing harassment and underreported acts of vandalism, agricultural destruction, and violence perpetuated by settlers who operate under the protection of the Israel, Israel Defense Force, the IDF. In neighborhoods such as East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah, Palestinians are frequently evicted from their homes under a complex law that perversely declares them to be absentees, even if they've lived in the house for decades. In one infamous video of such eviction, an obese Jewish settler tells a distraught uh, Palestinian homeowner, if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. Meanwhile, Gaza is rightly labeled the world's largest open-air prison. Though Israel withdrew forces and settlers from the 25-mile-long strip in 2005, it continued to control the territory from the outside in a way that creates a miserable existence for 2 million inhabitants in one of the world's most dense population centers. Controlling Gaza's air, sea, and land borders, the state of Israel imposes an ongoing economic blockade, blockade that fluctuates in intensity. Individuals are only granted travel permits under narrow circumstances. Israel does not allow Gaza to operate an airport or seaport, and imports and exports via roads are tightly restricted. Egypt has compounded the situation with its own restriction and periodic border closures. The result is economic devastation. The pre-October 7th unemployment rate was over 46% per capita income, only about 25% of the West Bank's level, and 65% of Gaza residents were below the poverty line. Given the reality of life for Palestinians in this de facto single state that uh, includes Gaza and the West Bank, it's understandable why many would call for an entirely new system of government between the river and the sea. As the Declaration of Independence asserts, when any form of government becomes destructive of the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government. Intentionally using inflammatory language, Israel's defenders often say that those who call for new governments are advocating the destruction of Israel. Dissolution would be more precise when discussing a government, but destruction serves the public relations goal of demonizing the opposition by connoting their bent on physical destruction. Israel's supporters employ similarly flawed characterizations of an often-used Palestinian slogan that's ubiquitous in these ongoing protests. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It's reasonable to interpret that as a call for the dissolution of the state of Israel. But those pushing back against pro-Palestinian voices regularly declare the slogan is nothing less than a call for genocide. While any slogan will mean different things to different people, this one has been used for decades by Palestinians seeking the same liberties as Israeli Jews throughout the entire territory ruled by the state of Israel. Chief among their wishes is the freedom of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, Jordan, the West Bank, and Gaza 
to return to what is now considered Israel proper. Some 700,000 Palestinians were either expelled or forced to flee that land when the state of Israel was instituted in 1948. Any intellectually honest appraisal of the situation in Israel must center on an acknowledgement that the two-state solution's ship sailed long ago. Thanks to a relentless Jewish settlement of the West Bank having eliminated any possibility of a contiguous Palestinian state. Given the facts on the ground, a growing number of advocates inside and outside greater Israel are calling for a different one-state arrangement, one with a secular government securing equal rights for all it serves. Belying assertions that calling for the state of Israel to be replaced is anti-Semitic, those advocates include many Jews. To take one prominent example, abandoning his long-running defense of Israel, prominent American Jewish intellectual Peter Beinart embraces the idea in a milestone 2020 New York Times essay, I no longer believe in a Jewish state. Thanks to a cultivated mythology that falsely depicts Arab-Jew conflict as something intrinsically and internal, rather than something that's largely bloomed in the 20th century, many Westerners can't conceive of Jews and Muslims living peacefully in the same country. However, that was the condition in Palestine before the creation of the state of Israel. And it's even the condition today in the Zionist state's arch enemy, Iran. There, the Middle East's largest Jewish minority operates synagogues, enjoys kosher restaurants, runs hospitals and schools, and even has a reserve seat in the Iranian parliament. Western governments weaponize false premises to limit speech. It would be bad enough if references to a non-existent right to exist and false accusations of genocide, of genocidal intent, were only used as intellectual bankrupt talking points. However, in a variety of countries, these falsehoods are alarmingly being hardwired into government policies and used to curtail speech and the exchange of ideas. In Switzerland, police this month banned a planned protest simply because promotional messaging included from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which authorities declared an incitement to violence. Berlin police went further declaring it illegal to speak the slogan and already arresting at least one man for doing so. Europe has long held the lead in the West race to authoritarian dystopia, but politicians like 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley are doing their best to help the United States catch up. Haley recently promised to change the official federal definition of anti-Semitism to include denying Israel's right to exist and to use that warped definition to cancel the federal tax exemption of any college that allows students or professors to freely argue from a different political order in what is now greater Israel. Those who support the state of Israel are free to present the case that it's just arrangement for the 7.5 million Jews and the 7.5 million Palestinians between the river and the sea, however, painting those who demand a new arrangement as inherently immoral, genocidal, or anti-Semitic is ignorant at best and maliciously misleading at worst. End of the article. I have shared my opinion on this particular conflict before, and I'll be brief about reiterating it. Uh, If you are fighting against an occupying force... I don't have a problem with you fighting back. And of course the occupying force is going to label you as terrorists for attacking them. Um, what I am a little bit more, uh, thrilled about, um, excited by, or just, you know, dumbfounded that it is happening is the amount of support, uh, that Palestine is receiving this time around. It seems to me, if I recall, you know, the several years ago, you know, when, when, you know, cause this conflict flares up all the time. Um, but I remember several years ago, there being little to no Palestinian support from Western outlets, Western media, Western people in general, uh, maybe a handful here or there. Um, but I feel like this go around the, I'm going to call it the Palestinian resistance is, garnering much more support than they have in the past. And that's not to say that I'm, I like, I support the existence of Hamas or any Palestinian government. Um, but just that I think that for, you know, for lack of trying, uh, but maybe because the internet is vast and broad now, um, more people are being educated to both sides of the conflict 
rather than just the one, right? Like, you know, when I, when I talk to the boss, uh, about it, he feels that Israel has done nothing wrong and could do nothing wrong in the conflict because he's never seen the numbers or the statistics or the stories of the destructive behaviors, uh, of the Israeli government towards the Palestinian people, right? He doesn't, he's not even aware of these things. And so he only sees, uh, the mainstream media accounts of, 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 you know, Hamas attacking Israeli civilians and never vice versa. Um, so the, the fact that there are, that the, the fact that there's Palestinian support, um, I think is a good thing because it's, it shows that people are aware of the deception that the mainstream media is purporting, um, and making their own decisions based on, you know, more gathering of the facts than they may have in the past. Now, the headline of the article is of course, that no country has a right to exist. And the, the part of that that matters is the right. And this is, this is a difficult thing to wrap your head around um, for a lot of people, including people who I would consider, you know, libertarian or educated in the matters. And that's rights in general don't exist, right? They, they just, it's not a real thing. It's, it's a theoretical construct. It's a conception of the mind uh, that someone has a right to a thing. And I, my argument has been, you know, more recently than not, um, that rights are one of two things, that which you can defend or that which everyone agrees to. And so if everyone agrees that Israel has a right to exist, well, then de facto it does. Uh, But if someone disagrees, right, if there's a disagreement on their quote-unquote right to exist and challenges it, then Israel must defend that. And the only way to defend that quote-unquote right uh, is through the violence that everyone, you know, is probably tired of me talking about. Uh, similarly, you know, the, the, the United States, you know, claims a right to be and, you know, that they, they have a right to do what they want and you, you serfs just pay your taxes and be done with it. And based on my own, like, position on the issue, uh, they do. Right? And it's not, and it's not because they actually have the right. It's not because we've agreed to let them. Um, it's because that no one is fighting back to challenge that right. Right? If if they're going to declare something to be so, and they receive no challenge, uh, then it's accepted. And this is this is uh, this is a concept I was trying to like long time ago. I was I was thinking through you know, the rules of debate and how debate should work. And I don't, I don't know if there's actual, you know, documentation of this anywhere else. I know there's, I know there's like formats to debate. And one of the things that I frequently bring up, you know, on, on other programs is um, the debate tactic called the, like the Gish Gallop. And it's where one party just spouts uh, a bunch of, you know, talking points and nonsense and facts, but never really makes a coherent point. And the tactic is in doing so that the, your opponent is not going to be able to challenge each and every one, right? So whatever, whatever your opponent challenges, you just let go, right? And whatever they don't challenge, you declare victory for, right? So you, you spout off a whole bunch of nonsense. They respond, you spout off like seven pieces of nonsense. They respond to six, um, and you declare victory on the seventh, right? So as, as I was pondering this, you know, like, one of the things for, you know, formal debates that I was thinking of is, um, any, any, any proposition not challenged is accepted, right? So if you put forth an argument and your opponent doesn't challenge it, well, then you move forward, you know, as if it were true and you can build upon the case, which is why, uh, people don't like it, but I cut people off early in conversations. And when discussing these things to challenge a point up front, right? Like I don't want to give them the ability to think, you know, to, to move on with their point, uh, when a, when a, when a former point is being challenged, right? You can't build on something in dispute. If you, if you, if there's a disputed topic or preposition or proposition or whatever, uh, you have to, you have to work back from there 
until you get to like common ground again in which to build your argument, right? Like there, there has to be some axiomatic starting point of which we agree. And sometimes you'll say, well, I'm, I'm not going to agree, but I'm going to agree for the sake of letting you continue your argument because I would like to see where it goes. And then, and then, right, when you're done, then we can circle back to the premise um, and challenge it from there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's fine to hear it out all the way if that's your thing. I don't like to do that. I go like, no, nope, I, I, I fundamentally have a disagreement with your premise. We need to walk it back before we can move forward. And if we can't find agreement, then you, you got to find a new tactic to get to your point from where we can agree. Else I'm not going to get there with you. I'm just not. So similarly, you know, to, to take this back to the, the right of the government to exist, um, if they declare it to be so, right, if Israel says, I have a right to exist, or the United States says, I have a right to exist, um, or even if they don't say it and they just act as if they do and no one challenges it and no one uh, puts forth a defense against it, right? Then it's de facto the case, right? You know, like, you know, uh, when it comes to paying taxes in the United States, right? People are like, well, I don't want to pay my taxes. And I personally, I consider myself a tax victim, not a taxpayer. Uh, but if no one's challenging it, if no one's putting up a defense against it, if no one's protesting the taxes, uh, well, then I don't feel as bad for those who are paying, right? Like if, if you're, if you're voluntarily paying your taxes for whatever reason, um, I don't feel bad for you. Like you're hardly a victim at that point. Like, where's the protest? Where is, where is the, the pushback? Where is the defense for individual freedom and liberty on such a small scale as like paying or filing your taxes, right? Every, everyone's hankering for a refund, uh, to get their money back, but no one wants to hold it up front and not give it to them in the first place. And so when, when people go like, well, they're, they're using my taxes for bad things, I go, well, stop fucking giving it to them, right? Just stop paying, and then they won't have your money to do the bad things with. And if everybody did that, well, then, you know, certainly we'd be a lot freer than we are, and it'd be more difficult for them to collect it. But Israel's, Israel's right to exist uh, again, maybe, maybe a theoretical construct, but they're defending it, right? They're defending it. Uh, you know, they're, def they're, they're defending it and they have support for it from other Western allies, right. That are assisting them with, you know, money and weapons, etc. cetera. Uh, they're defending it against the Hamas, uh, t quote unquote terrorists or pushback, right. That they're winning the physical battle, to maintain their existence, whether or not they have a right to. And if they don't have a right to, again, it's because there's pushback, but they're, they're, they're winning the physical battle. They're winning the violent war. And that's, you know, again, it may be a theoretical construct, but like that's human history, right? Those, those who win the violent conflict, write the history books and continue onward. Uh, I think it's an old Norm Macdonald quote. It's, it's a fucking amazing that the, the winners always end up right. The, you know, the, the good guys always win the wars in the history books. Well, yeah, because they won and they write in favor of themselves. So if Israel wipes out Palestine um, or, you know, gets the one state solution or continues to govern, right, it's, it's because they have won the physical battle in doing so. They have, you know, the, others have agreed that they can exist. And so they have the backing and support of allies, um, and they are defending that, that existence against encroachment. And that's, you know, that's, that's the fundamental basis for declaring something to be a right. Now, if Palestine wants to be free, if the people of Palestine want to be free, if the people in America want to be free, right, first you have to reject their claim that they have the right, right? You can say, like, I don't accept that premise, Right? No, you do not. You you can exercise your violence and maintain you know the, the your existence, but the the right is removed once we disagree, and then once we, and then and then that puts the onus on them to defend their position, and in defense of their position, uh, it is incumbent upon us to defend our rights as well, like our individual liberty, our individual freedoms. Right? They they cannot coexist with the existence of the government, like one must go. And so we can either have a government or we can have freedom and liberty. And it's going to take, in my opinion, it's going to take either the battle 
right, of, of one uh, outmaneuvering and conquering the other to make it so, uh, or it's going to take, you know, the, the state, the government, those individuals backing down and agreeing that we do indeed have a right uh, to freedom and liberty, and I just don't see that part happening. Right, that that's the in the system people. That's the people going like, well, we just have to vote for more freedoms and more liberties. No, they won't take them away. No, they won't vote for more for them. Right, they won't take that seat of power and use it to enhance their personal freedoms and liberty. Oh no, no. Right, we we will beg them and plead with them and vote and challenge their. Well, we'll vote for the other guy and then they'll do what we want because they want the power, and the only way they keep the power is through our vote. Well, they don't need your vote. They have the vote of other people. And the other people are giving them the vote because they're bought and paid for. Right? We'll steal it from these freedom lovers and give it to you safety lovers if you safety lovers just vote for us. Right? We will be the protector of, of you against these freedom and liberty-minded individuals. And, of course, there's more people that want safety than there are that want freedom and liberty, so they win the vote. Right. You're not you, the freedom, the individual freedom and liberty lover, you know, in, in a rare case, right. will win that vote. And the, the Argentina thing, like how rare is that? It's like the biggest news because of how rare it is. Uh, some chick want a mayor's thing and like Wichita cats. How rare is that? Right. It's big news because of how rare. it's not a turning of the tides. It's an anomaly. There's nothing. There's nothing to suggest that that's that's like that's where the the world is going. That that's where freedom lovers are taking it. You know, it's it's a small pocket. It's a blip on the radar. It's an anomaly in the grand scheme of things. And so I don't see it as a, a changing winds or a turning of the tides or any of that. Like the the vast majority of people everywhere else, right, still want still want the safety of the state. Right, uh, Glenn Jacobs, the the mayor of like Knox, Tennessee, libertarian wrestler, whatever, right, is an anomaly. He's a blip. I'm glad he got the job. Right, better him than somebody else. Uh, and you know, it's mostly because I've I liked him as a wrestler before I liked him as a politician or an Austrian economist. Which fucking congrats on that. Um, but it's not the norm, and it is, I don't see it being the norm. And even if it becomes the norm that way. Right, it's still, it's still uh, left to the whims of the next vote, right? And any any charlatan politician can then come forward, right, in two to four years, promise the world to, to the people who still you know don't enjoy liberty and freedom, and take it all back. And I don't want my liberty and freedom in a position where it can be taken back, right? The price of freedom, the price of liberty, is eternal vigilance, not at the ballot box. It's the, it's the ability to repel the threat or, or to the, get the agreement of your neighbors to not be a threat, right? And if the federal government, you know, if the Israeli government or the United States federal government dissolves, right, and is no longer a threat, well, then the, the rising threat will be much smaller. And I think that's the part that, you know, people are like, well, the warlords will take over. No, they won't. We just, we just shed the biggest largest most cumbersome government on the the world has ever known uh jamal and his ak-47 is not going to take over right he will be put to rest quick fast and in a hurry by people still with the mentality of liberty and freedom hopefully like that's that's my general feeling on that's my opinion on thing like i i fear not the warlords rising uh because what do they have that the United States federal government or the Israeli Defense Force, right, doesn't have bigger, better, more of that we just repelled, right? Like the, they got nothing. They got no, They're they're asking for a quick, slow, and painful death if they're going to try to rise up and take over uh, from people who just fought for their freedoms and their liberties uh, and won, right? Like if if the uh, again, I don't care if it's Hamas. But if the Palestinian people like rise up, fight back, and win, uh, they should be able to hang on to that for some time, because who's going to challenge it, right? Who's going to who's going to come in and say like, well, now that you've fought for your freedoms, right, we're here to rule over you, right? Like that's 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 asking for another conflict against the victor, 
right? You're probably not as good as the United States military. You're probably not as good as the Israeli defense force. And you're going to come in and like challenge. Probably not. It'll, it'll take some time, right? For the, for the war fatigue to settle in for the next generation to become soft, you know? And, and I'm, I'm okay with that here. Um, because my life is like, you know, more important than the future, right? I want to be free now. I'm not trying to set this up for future generations to have a, have a good crack at it. Right. So if I have to, if I have to live through the anarchy of no government, you know, while things are getting settled in, then fucking fine with me. Let's make that happen. Uh, and let's see where, where it takes us. And I believe in the markets. Right? So it's like, well, things will be chaotic. Yes, maybe. But I believe that the markets will settle that. Again, quick, fast, and in a hurry. So I'm not concerned about a stateless society where things run rampant and chaos ensues uh, because I believe that the markets will, will solve those problems. And I may be, you know, it may be um, utopic of me to believe such a thing. Uh, but they seem to handle other things pretty well when left alone. And I have no reason to believe that it won't be the case, uh, absent, absent state violence and state coercion, right? You let's, let's eliminate the violence and coercion and let the markets do their thing. Um, and I don't think I'm wrong in suggesting that that's a better outcome, uh, than regulated markets and violently oppressed markets and coerced markets. I think we'll do better. I, I'm confident that we can do better without them and just people living peacefully amongst themselves, trading with each other as needed. Uh, but the state, no right to exist, but the ability to exist because there's no, def there's no one pushing back and challenging that position, right? Uh, to, to a degree, right? To, to the extent necessary to repel the threat, right? They say they have a right to exist and they're going to take our liberties and freedoms um, and there's a hand, you know, there's a small pocket of libertarians and anarchists challenging that statement, uh, or, you know, or the, the, the manifestation of that statement, um, but not enough to repel it. And so it continues on, not until we can get more people to, you know, to think like us, uh, but until we actually step up and repel it. like our own little pocket of freedom. I'm fine with that. If New Hampshire secedes and, you know, we kick off the feds and then we kick off the state and then we kick off the towns and it's just individuals living free and we can defend that pocket against encroachment, uh, you know, through community action and, and, uh, cooperative defense, then I'm for that too. Um, but I don't need to get 49 other states on board to make that happen. Like, you know, just, just the defense itself would be enough. You know, if New Hampshire had a nuke, Right. And so like anybody that tries to fuck with us is getting blown the fuck up. Right. Much like other nuclear armed societies, uh, the United States tends to, to back off a little bit more until they become a threat. And maybe the propaganda campaign in the rest of the United States would be like New Hampshire's the new South North Korea, right? The, except without a leader. Right. They're just, they're just, they're just a nuclear power. They're just a nuclear armed region threatening, you know, your safety and your, your liberties, uh, by, by their very existence. Well, they won't do anything because, you know, we then would have a bomb and hopefully that'd be enough. I don't know. Moving on headline, neither democracy nor union democracy are ideals. So another, should they exist type of articles? Uh, currently, you can get lots of hits if you search, what is wrong with politics? Many suggested answers reflect a long-standing central tenet of progressivism that more democracy is the solution. As Woodrow Wilson wrote, when something intervenes between the people and the government, thrust aside the something that comes in the way, that has led to democratic being applied to whatever is politically approved of, and undemocratic for something being opposed. Unfortunately, majority determination is entirely consistent with choices that destroy liberty. America's founders said so plainly, and the contractions of individual liberty that have accompanied progressive expansion of democracy in America demonstrate that lesson to anyone willing to pay attention. 
John Adams said that Americans' natural rights cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. James Madison noted that democracy provides nothing to check the inducement to sacrifice the weaker party. Alexander Hamilton wrote, Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. Thomas Jefferson asserted that elective despotism was not the government we fought for, but one founded on free principles. Further, he wrote, the minority possess their equal rights, which equal laws must protect, and to violate would be oppression. In fact, the word democracy appears nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, and a constitution of limited enumerated powers that included a Bill of Rights against government overreaching is clearly inconsistent with unlimited democracy. There would be no purpose in putting certain rights beyond government violation, even if democratically supported, if whatever some majority decided always determined the law. Unfortunately, political democracy as an ideal has serious flaws. In fact, as Friedrich Hayek noted, it is frequently the problem, as all the inherited limitations of government powers are breaking down before unlimited democracy. Any ideal would avoid violating individuals' established rights. But policies that somehow manage to achieve 50% plus one votes frequently advance coercive measures that take from some and give to others. An ideal would be responsive. People's choices would have to matter. It would give people incentives to become well-informed and think carefully about policies. It would require powerful incentives to deter dishonesty and misrepresentation. It would have to be limited in scope as, so, as no one wants every choice about their lives subject to majority determination. If you think otherwise, ask people what in their lives they want determined by majority rule rather than by their own choices. But democratically violating people's rights is the default setting for legislation and regulation today, rather than the rare exception. Virtually no one's vote alters important election results, which is far from giving people power to effectively exercise their desires. Not only does politics impose few effective constraints on dishonest and misrepresentation, but voters also face very limited incentives to think carefully about such malfeasance. In contrast, a system of voluntary cooperation based on self-ownership requires that property rights be respected. No majority can violate owners' rights. Individuals' dollar votes change their outcome even when their preferences are not the majority preferences, making them far better informed than they are about politics. There are also more mechanisms providing honesty and accountability. In some, market democracy rather than political democracy, which is often focused on limiting or overriding market democracy, would serve Americans better in a vast array of areas. And those areas include virtually all decisions and policies we need not share in common, which is almost all of them, beyond the mutual protection of our property rights. We would be better served in such areas from letting people exercise self-determination through their own voluntary arrangements, protected by their inalienable rights. That conclusion is not only inconsistent with a cornucopia of government actions today, but also with the workers' democracy rationale so frequently given for unions and their government-granted monopoly of power of exclusive representation, which has given Americans our hot labor summers of union strikes and demands. Unions justify their claim to exclusive representation of workers by analogy to political democracy, as if it were the ideal. Just as democracy means those who did not vote for a winning candidate must accept their political representation, they claim all workers must accept union representation, uh, services chosen by a majority of workers in an election. But the analogy fails because, as Charles Baird put it, unions are not governments. Democracy's mandatory submission of a numerical minority to the will of a numerical majority only makes sense in very limited circumstances where different individual outcomes cannot peacefully coexist. Uh, examples, rules and budgets for national defense, police, and the courts. Eh. But governments are monopolists of the legal use of force, who always face the temptation to employ that power against their citizens. Further, democracy was not supported to enable but to limit those exercising the power of government over them. Consequently, compulsory submission by individuals to the will of a majority is justified only in constitutionality 
authorized by governmental activities. But buying and selling labor services is a private matter. <clears throat> Different outcomes can coexist peacefully. When a worker decides to accept or reject the terms of a job offer, another worker can make a different decision. A job offer made and accepted is a matter of mutual voluntary consent between an employer and an employee. Others can decide for themselves among available alternatives. Each can go his own way in peace. Baird summarized his conclusion elsewhere when he wrote, The framers of the Constitution drew a bright line separating rules for decision-making in government and rules for decision-making in the private sphere of human action. It is legitimate to override individual preferences in favor of majority rule only with respect to the enumerated limited powers of the federal government. Everything else should be left to the individuals to decide. Irrespective of what a majority of others may prefer, an individual is not forced to submit to the will of a majority. Exclusive representation is a violation of voluntary exchange. It implies that an individual does not own his labor. Rather, a majority of his colleagues own it. It is a violation of a dissenting worker's freedom of association. Freedom of association in private affairs requires that each individual is free to choose whether or not to associate with other individuals or groups of individuals who seek to associate with him. Freedom of association forbids any kind of forced association, even by majority vote. <clears throat> the sale of one's labor services to a willing buyer is quintessentially private act. The union analogy to democracy is also undercut by the fact that political winners have to regularly stand for re-election. In contrast, once a union is certified in a single election, its power to represent that workplace continues without any further election being required. Subsequently, those who voted in that election need never be given another chance to vote, and no new worker needs ever to be given a chance to vote. The eventual result, as with, with the United Auto Workers, is that none of the current unionized workers ever cast a ballot in favor of the union. Democracy has many failings as an ideal way to order society, and unions' exclusive representation power is justified by an inappropriate analogy to democracy. That compounded misunderstanding does not serve Americans well. We would be better served in both cases if we instead relied on private property and voluntary arrangements over the vast range of what does not need to be decided in common. To do the opposite, continually doubling down on what democracy can force us uh, to do against our will, cannot return us closer to equal rights and equal treatment under the law that is uh, the real ideal for society. End of this article. Once again, I'll tie this into like conversations with the boss a little bit uh, because he, you know, he likes to consider himself management. Uh, ironically, he's like the marketing manager of the organization, not the owner, but when talking to his subordinates, uh, he res, res, re, uh, refers to himself as like the big high kahuna. Um, when dealing with certain customers, you know, he, he tends to represent himself as someone who can get things done. Uh, and many times that's just bringing the, bringing the problem uh, up to re, the real management, the owner and the owner's son. Right. And then hoping that they do something about it this time where they've been neglectful in the past. Uh, and when they're neglectful again, right, it falls back down to him to, you know, to uh, satiate the customer, pacify the customer um, in such a way as to, you know, make like he was doing something all along. Like, I don't know what happened. I passed it on to who it should go to. And I don't same thing that happened the last time, boss, like they dropped the ball and. You ought not put yourself on the line if you can't do something. Right? Like, you know, you, you feign responsibility uh, when none is able to be taken. Um, but he is, you know, be, because he sees himself as like management uh, because of title, he is vehemently anti-union in like all forms. Like these things shouldn't exist. And generally, generally I agree with him uh, because most of these unions are backed by the threat of violence uh, protected by the state, protected by the government, right? What I am in favor of is, you know, collective bargaining arrangements, right? Like, the, you know, an individual may be able to take a job offer or reject a job offer if they don't like the terms and someone else may decide to take it. But generally, uh, in a lot of cases, 
if you if if you collectively agree to not take a job offer unless it's of a certain amount, right? And and you and your and your cohorts all agree to that. Well, then filling those jobs is is much more difficult, right? Like you know the, the United Auto Workers Union. I don't know how big their union is, but the, I'm I'm assuming it's in the thousands. Right, like if if they into if one of those guys throws a hissy fit and says like I'm not coming to work until you pay me more, right? One person is easily replaceable, right? And you can you are just an individual. You you are cog in the machine. You can be easily replaced by someone willing to take your job, right? But if a thousand workers say like, well, we're we're all not coming to work unless you pay us more, well, then like a decision has to be made. Right, because because now you're not talking about easily replacing a thousand workers. That's that's time consuming. There's there's no one to cover that. Um, that's money lost for the time it'll take uh, to 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 you know rebuild the staff and retrain a staff of a thousand or more. Right, than it would be to replace the one guy who says no. So in those cases, you know, uh, sharing what you earn with coworkers. Right, whether more or less, you know, letting being open about those things can do more for your individual bottom line. Um, and I was, you know, I don't even know if this is true because we never actually talked about it. But I was in a position where I was told, "Don't tell anyone that you're making more than them." Right, I'm paying you more because you're obviously worth it, but don't share this information with them because they're getting paid less. Um, and you know, unfortunately at the time, you know, I, I don't think I was like dumb to the idea. Um, but I also, I wasn't close enough with my coworkers to care. Right. And like, I don't talk to them. So I'm not, you know, they don't ask, I don't tell. So who cares? But when it was time to like get a raise, right. Then, then, you know, more people need to speak up and there's, you know, again, I'll take this back to my current position. There's, uh, there's a couple of, uh, I'm going to call them subordinates or workers, whatever you want to call them, uh, hankering for more money, right? And they, they do so privately and publicly. Um, and because I'm me, I'm like, I'm aware of the tactics, but I don't get to make the decisions. So I don't, I don't fault them for their tactics. Uh, but I'm also keenly aware of what they're doing, right? They're, they know that if everyone asks for a raise, then they're more likely to get one along with that rather than being the sore thumb that sticks out, you know, or the, the you know, whatever, trying to get one on their own. Because if they keep trying to get one on their own, they're just constantly, they're constantly rejected, right? Because one person, you know, can be replaced. Even if they're, like, good at what they do, um, they, it, it doesn't matter. Like, we have, we have enough other people to cover where their workload can be made up um, in some form or fashion, right? It's, it's not like they, they are not essential uh, to the performance of the unit as a whole, uh, even though they're, they, they perform better uh, than some of the others, right? Like it doesn't matter. They're, they're individually, they're replaceable, but if they can get everybody else thinking about it, talking about it, you know, discussing it amongst themselves, pushing for it, um, then it is possible that everyone gets one and they get a bump with it. And their, and their bump might be bigger than everyone else's bump because, Hey, you know, I'm still better than everybody else. Here's, here's my number. Here's my numbers demonstrably better than everyone else's. Um, so here you go, you know? Um, so the collective bargaining aspect of it, you know, it has to be done tactfully and without the coercive force of the state. Right. You know, if, if they, if all they did was push for, uh, you know, if all they did was try to get people on board, you know, and didn't have the, the, the force behind it of the state to, you know, to not allow the employers from going elsewhere because the union was voted in, right, then, then it still can be effective, right? It's, and, and it may not be fought as harshly against by companies, right? Like Amazon was fighting against being unionized. Starbucks was fighting against being unionized. And generally, you know, they, they could just be easily fighting against the coercion of the state, right? If it was like one little shop here or there that decided to unionize uh, and there wasn't state coercion behind it, then they could either deal with the union 
or fire them all and start from scratch and figure out whatever loss that was or find some benefits in the union. Um, you know, some, eh, I don't know how that would work, but whatever, you know, find some benefits there and allow that one to exist. Um, and if someone steps out of line, right, you just, you fire them because that's how that works, right? They're not, their job isn't held sacrosanct because of a union without protection of the state. So if a union member, you know, violates the contract, you just, you let that one go, right? Hey, hey, we need another barista, you know, from your union because your other guy's a piece of garbage and we have to let him go, right? And the union, the union then sends one. Right. So maybe, maybe that's the way it could work. Right. Maybe, maybe the unions as a provider of labor, uh, simplify the hiring process by having skilled talent readily available, uh, whenever one is needed, as opposed to protecting everyone's job. Right. Instead of, instead of putting out a job ad on indeed or Craigslist, right. For, you know, some odd position and having to go through the training process, uh, Starbucks just go, uh, Joe's out, Bill's in or Susan's out, Jenny's in, and boom, you know, the line continues to operate because, hey, because they're union, they have to have been trained in some form or fashion. They have to have certain skills in order to make it into the union, and therefore they can just plug right in. And that that could be, you know, that could very well be a benefit of using union labor, right? It, it is, everything, is, everything is provided for you instead of you having to go out and train and hire and find and recruit and do it all on your own. Um, kind of like a, kind of like a, one of like a temp agency, right? Maybe temp agencies should just be unions, right? Here, here are the people with the skills, right? You need the people with the skills. We provide them for you, provided that you only use our people with our skills, right? And that, that could be a way to do it. Um, but that, again, that's my only, my only problem with unions in general is the, that they function under the coercion of the state. Um, but I do see a value in collective bargaining aspects of it, right? If, if, if that's all that there is, then no problem. Um, as far as the, the, the democracy aspect of it, you know, clearly democracy has failed. Um, it's not a good thing for individual freedom and liberty, as we mentioned earlier. I don't think you're going to vote yourself into freedom and liberty, uh, as mentioned earlier. I just, like, democracy to me is, is you know, uh, some people say, well, it's it's the it's the worst one except for all the others. Uh, well, I, no, it's it's the worst it's the worst one because again, it, it forces people into compliance uh, just because they're outnumbered, you know. And and bully mathematics never sits well with me. Uh, the the one that would probably work best is the one that everyone refuses to try, and that's complete liberty and complete freedom and complete voluntary interactions amongst consenting individuals. Right. Let's try that and see how that goes. Let's let's open let's open up uh, the can of freedom for everyone to get. Let's let's make it so that complete liberty exists. Right. Free markets run amok, 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 amok. Uh, and let's let's see how that works out. If that doesn't work out, right? And I'm I'm confident that it will. But should that not work out, then let's revisit it. Right, let's say, well, okay, may, maybe in a small amount of coercion, but we haven't even tried it. Um, and, and those places that it has, you know, existed in the historic uh, ancient past uh, seem to be just fine at the time, um, except for the defense part, right? Like that's, that seems to be the failure of all this freedom um, is the, the value of collective defense, which is probably why. Uh, I'm so high on it uh, when it comes to like the, you know, the, the, the ability to protect individual freedom and liberty. Uh, I'm not naive to think that you're going to do it on your own, but, and you do need the help and support of those around you who also value freedom and liberty. Like it has, it, they, they have to be there. You have to congregate into one area where you, where, where you can utilize the tools of collective defense against your would-be oppressors, right? Because all the all the historic examples of where you know complete liberty and freedom and no state and non-coercion worked, right, were eventually all overthrown by a state. Uh, and as I said earlier, if that's if that's the inevitability of the situation, uh, fine, just as long as it doesn't happen while I'm alive, right? Like I let let me live let me live through that stage. 
Uh, terrible, terrible tangent, but I was talking about it with someone earlier this week, right? Like I went to a high school uh, that was a football school and I was well undersized. So I never played football. Um, I was the water boy for one season um, because it was a football school and like a family school. Uh, you know, most of my uncles and my dad also went to the same high school. It's kind of like I, I fell in line with the family tradition um, and I was a football fan at the time. So at the time, this particular high school was in the midst of a like 15 year dynasty uh, as state champs. And when I went in as a freshman, um, the only thing I cared about besides graduating and probably even more so than graduating was like, I don't want the team to lose the championship while I'm there. Right. I have nothing to do with the football team aside from, you know, the one, the one season as water boy, Right. But there's, there's, you know, having gone to the games before high school um, and not much afterwards because I moved um, or at all afterwards for that matter, um, there was, there was some connection there where I like, I, you know, but when I started as a freshman, it was like an 11 or 12 year dynasty without losing, like, please just don't lose when I'm there. I do not want to be part of the graduating class that lost the state championships, you know, and I think the next season after I graduate, they finally did lose the state championships, right? I'm like, oh, well, not on my watch, right? Like, didn't happen when I was there, you know, praise whomever. Uh, but I kind of feel the same way about, you know, if if we were to achieve uh, this complete liberty and complete freedom worldview uh, or or society, right? Like, let's just not lose it under my watch, right? Let's, let's take care of Jamal and his AK if he starts to rise up. Let's do what's necessary to get there now. Um, and let's, let's main, let's have a thousand year reign, right. Of complete liberty and freedom and see how that goes before we decide that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this thing isn't working out. Let's like, let's give it a chance and let's give it a chance in such a way as to repel the threats of democracy and oppression, um, and any sort of overlord trying to take over, right? Like let's, let's be clear about that up front. If you attempt that here, uh, you will be faced with resistance. And, you know, as far as America is concerned, there are some that claim that here, right? There, there will never be a land invasion of America because there's a, bl- a gun behind every blade of grass. Like, we're, we're the most well-armed and, I guess, violent citizenry the world has ever known. Um, and if it weren't for the military trying to overthrow the rest of the world, uh, we'd probably be doing okay just, you know, with the defense of this landmass, I think. Maybe. Who knows? Um, I don't, I don't see the Russians, you know, landing an armada and rolling tanks onto the street and not meeting some sort of anti-tank resistance. Um, and the only reason that would work in modern times is because the current citizenry isn't allowed to have anti-tank weaponry, right? I mean, I guess you are, but it's prohibitively expensive and, you know, they're, they're trying to get rid of the AR-15 of all things. So bigger things, military grade things are not going to happen. Right, like yes, yes, you can own a tank uh, if you're a private citizen, uh, but you're not going to get a military grade tank. Like you likely can't afford it, um, and they likely won't sell it to you. So you can have the old, you know, World War II collector's tank, you know, to show off and whatever. But you're not, you're not getting the real deal. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna have the, you know, if we're gonna be able to provide collective defense against the oppressors. Um, then we ought to have access to that weaponry and we ought to make sure that we have access to, you know, the bigger and better weaponry as the market dictates, right? I'm not saying to steal from everyone to develop it, but Hey, you know, if, if it's, if it's for sale and you can afford it, we should have it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the collected, the collected defense against democracy, right? Is the individual standing up. It's the, it's the sheep. Uh, it's the well-armed sheep, uh, defending its right to live against the wolves voting on supper, right? That's that's what that's what you need to be. You need to be the well-armed sheep. If you, if they're going to have a democracy, right, you can't let them vote for your oppression. You can't let them vote to put you out, uh, to kill you, to take what's yours, to take away your rights, your liberties, your freedoms. Um, you have to be the well-armed sheep protesting the vote, right? And that's that's the that's the bottom line. Uh, when it comes to any sort of democracy, 
And if you're going to if you're going to play in that system, if you're going to cast a vote, if you're going to be the vote casting sheep, right? And and the outcome is not in your favor, right? Don't be surprised when you get eaten for dinner, right? Like you played by the rules, that's the outcome. Stop playing that game. If you don't like the rules, don't play the game. And changing the game means collectively defending, like find some other well-armed sheep who are protesting the vote, right? That's, that's, that's the essence of defending your liberties and your freedoms against those who try to oppress you. I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week, hopefully with MC and maybe even KS back, but we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.